The Macro View, Episode 48. Warning, if you're triggered by the truth or get lost in a sea of logic, we just don't give a damn. This is The Macro View. You are now listening to the number one daily podcast focused on spreading the logic of liberty. Little needs to be said about eminent domain. It's theft, pure and simple. It has no place in a free society, and especially not in a quote-unquote free market system that many people in the U.S. think we live under, which is a total farce. Many rush to defend eminent domain, wondering how else so-called public infrastructure would be feasible. Now, a lack of understanding of the market incentive for such infrastructure is no excuse to defend the outright stealing of property from other people. Now, one may defend their critique by claiming that the government does have to pay for the property, but they do not have to pay the value that the individual property owner would require in order to sell the property voluntarily. They have to pay a quote-unquote adjust compensation of which the judiciary has ruled time and again to mean quote-unquote fair market value. Now, anyone with any background in economics post the marginal revolution of the 1800s should take serious issue with this. Values have nothing to do with being quote-unquote just or quote-unquote fair as we might say in modern times. The market price is not necessarily the value that the owner would require to give up their particular property. There are many things that that many people value as priceless that they wouldn't give up for all the money in the world. Now, we all know that people hold sentimental values for certain things. Now, other people for the same things may not pay more than a couple of dollars for them. Values are subjective. Government has absolutely no business dictating prices that someone must accept. Values are subjective. They're in the eye of the beholder, so to speak. Now, it is hardly just for a group of bureaucrats to force a price down the property owner's throat, replacing the market price with a bureaucratically dictated price. The market price being the actual market price being the price at which a buyer and seller would come to mutually agreed upon terms. Now, it is true that in this country, eminent domain is technically fully constitutional for very specific purposes, however. Those purposes have been fully perverted and corrupted as nearly every aspect of the founding document of this country has been. With that said, it being constitutional does not justify it either. The Constitution should be amended by the states as soon as possible to eliminate eminent domain from it altogether. Now, there's a lot more to discuss on the issue of eminent domain, and we'll dive right into that right after this quick break and a word from our sponsors. Something tells me that a lot of my listeners like to read those thick economic treatises like Basic Economics by Thomas Sowell, Man, Economy, and State by Murray Rothbard, and Human Action by Ludwig von Mises. In total... These three books alone are well over 2,500 pages. Now, you don't want to be lugging around one of these behemoths. It's far too inconvenient. This is exactly why I love my Kindle Paperwhite. Not only is it light, convenient, and easy to use, but especially for those of us that like to go back and reread certain parts that made an impact on us or are worth the second take, it's so easy to highlight and to take notes and to keep track of where you're at. Now, if you are like me and you like to have a hard copy of your favorite volumes, there really is nothing better than the Kindle Paperwhite. You can do all of your highlighting and note-taking digitally, 
and you can keep your hard copies in pristine condition to one day hand down as a legacy. Best of all, it's extremely easy on the eyes. If you spend all your day in front of the computer and you're sick of the headache that you get from reading PDFs on your monitor, there really is nothing better than the Kindle Paperwhite. Now, if you're an avid reader, go to T as in the, M as in macro, V as in view, podcast.com. That's TMVpodcast.com. And on the homepage right next to tonight's show page, you'll find a direct link to purchase your very own Kindle Paperwhite. You won't regret it. I use mine every single day, and you're sure to love it as well. Also, it's guaranteed to make you a better student of liberty. So head over to tmvpodcast.com, click on the link there on the right-hand side, and get yourself a Kindle Paperwhite. All right, so with my ethical issues with the matter of eminent domain express, the major issue of our time regarding eminent domain is the expansion of the power of the government's ability to use it. The actual phrase eminent domain does not appear in the Constitution specifically. It is referred to in the Fifth Amendment as takings, and then again in the Fourteenth Amendment as property within the Due Process Clause. With, within the Constitution, however, it is very clear about takings. They must be for public use. The Takings Clause clearly says public, public use. In the Fifth Amendment, the Takings Clause is the very last sentence. It says, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. Now, we already discussed a little bit, and we'll discuss more at the end of, uh, of today's show, the issue with, quote-unquote, just compensation. Now, the relative section of the 14th Amendment reads, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor de- deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protections of the laws. Now, legal scholars and the judiciary have read this portion of the due process clause as an extension of the limitation laid in the Fifth Amendment on takings to the states. So basically extending the limitation of what takings can be used for from the federal government to the states. Now, herein lies the issue of our time in that it is clear that constitutionally speaking, the use of eminent domain is permitted. However, that that issue that that use is strictly prohibited for public use. Now, the judiciary in the infamous Kelo versus the city of New London case ruled that public use can mean increased tax revenue. Increased tax revenue can mean public use from property taxes of a more valuable property that's t- going to be developed in, uh, in pro- on, on top of property that's taken by the city or the state. Now, the relative section of the affirming opinion it's just, it's so disgusting. It makes, it should make your blood boil, but it, it, I'm going to read it to everybody so that they kind of get a little bit better idea of what the opinion, the affirming opinion in the Kilo case uh, was. So it reads, quote, the city's determination that the area at issue was sufficiently distressed to justify a program, a program of economic rejuvenation is entitled to deference. The city has carefully formulated a development plan that it believes will provide appreciable benefits to the community, including but not limited to new jobs and increased tax revenue. As with other exercises in urban planning and development, the city is trying to coordinate a variety of commercial, residential, and recreational land uses with the hope that they will form 
a whole greater than the sum of its parts. To effectuate this plan, the city has invoked a state statute that specifically authorizes the use of eminent domain to promote economic development. Given the plan's comprehensive character, the thorough deliberation that preceded its adoption, and the limited scope of this court's review in such cases, it is appropriate here, as it was in Berman, to resolve the challenges of the individual owners, not on a piecemeal basis, but rather in light of the entire plan. Now, particularly bothersome is the use of the words, quote-unquote, plan and, quote-unquote, hope. Since the Kelo decision, takings have expanded rapidly and have applied to situations where a city or state government has purely taken a single, single piece of property or a small number of privately owned properties or even larger number of privately owned properties, handed them off to developers purely for the purpose or potential of generating increased tax revenue. With the affirmative opinion in Kelo, Justice Stevens delivered to the court, one of the specific justifications for the, uh, for the opinion is that it did in fact comply with the, or that it did in fact comply with the Fifth Amendment was the increased tax revenue that the plan, the quote-unquote plan, quote-unquote hoped to generate. Now, if this doesn't make your blood boil, I mean, you really should reconsider your worldview. Since when did a small group of city bureaucrats presenting a quote-unquote plan to increase revenue constitute the government's ability to steal someone's property and subsequently enrich a private development company? Now, with the decision codified in precedence, governments have been going crazy. Institute for Justice, the law firm that my younger brother happens to work for uh, or clerk for currently as a part of his um, he's currently in his, his second year finishing up his second year of law school he works for institute for justice right now uh, institute for justice not the office he works out of but their austin office is working on the biggest case since kilo um, it's in charlestown indiana now a release regarding the case from ij from the institute for justice reads as follows a small-town mayor in rural Indiana has made it his personal mission to oust the residents of a tight-knit working-class neighborhood, bulldoze their homes, and build a new fancy subdivision for much wealthier people. The only things standing in the way are a plethora of state statutes, the Indiana and U.S. constitutions, and now the Institute for Justice, which has filed a lawsuit against the city on behalf of dozens of property owners. Following the U.S. Supreme Court's notorious decision in Kelo versus the city of New London, which permitted cities to take property for quote-unquote economic development, the Indiana legislature enacted sweeping reforms to prevent the use of eminent domain for private gain. To evade this law, city officials of Charleston, Indiana, working in concert with, concert with private developer named Nice Ventures, has concocted a scheme to destroy the working class Peasant Ridge neighborhood, or excuse me, not Peasant Ridge, Pleasant Ridge neighborhood through a process that amounts to eminent domain by other means. Their plan is both simple and sinister. Charleston Mayor Bob Hall has turned the city's once benign housing maintenance code into a bludgeon. City inspectors have begun issuing crippling fines for quote-unquote property code violations, including even trivial ones such as torn screens, chipped paint, or a downed tree limb. 
The fines accumulate at a rate of $50 per day per violation, quickly leaving homeowners with thousands of dollars in fines and no way to pay. While homeowners try to address each violation, the fines continue to accumulate and the city finds new violations to compound the penalties. Faced with crippling fines, the homeowners find themselves confronted with an offer they cannot afford to refuse. Nice Ventures steps in and offers to buy the property for $10,000. Nice does not have to worry about the fines or repair orders because the city has agreed not to enforce the law against the developer. The inspections regime has been a windfall for Nice Ventures. Not only has it compelled more than 150 property owners to sell, it has also forced them to sell at considerable losses. The tax assessed values of the homes is between $25,000 and $35,000, and their fair market value, quote-unquote fair market value, was much higher <coughs> before the city destroyed the market by vowing to demolish every property. The net savings for Nice so far is nearly $2 million. Mayor Hall's alternative in an eminent domain scheme is illegal and unconstitutional under the local and state statutes, as well as the Indiana and U.S. constitutions. The Institute for Justice has teamed up with Pleasant Ridge residents who just want to keep their homes to file a preliminary injunction asking the court to end the mayor's mission to destroy their community. So we've got to get another word in from our sponsors of, of this episode but after this break, we're going to get into discussing the two key economic fallacies that are behind the use of eminent domain and its so-called constitutionality, which I, I shouldn't say so-called. It's constitutionality and, and their economic fallacies that were rooted in misunderstandings of economics prior to the marginal revolution, which the marginal revolution occurred in the 19th century, around the mid 19th century, which was long after the constitution was actually crafted. So we're going to get into those economic fallacies right after this quick message from tonight's, from tonight's other sponsor. We'll be right back. So I do realize that not everyone has the time to read every book that they want to, and that's fine. But I bet those same people that don't have a lot of time to read spend a lot of time in their car commuting back and forth from work or from school. There's another phenomenal Amazon product for those of you that are thinking, yep, that's me right about now. It's Audible. Now, I'm sure some of you already know about Audible. It's the audiobook app that turns reading into listening. It's great. And while I'm an avid reader, there are far too many days on my drive from downtown Los Angeles to Santa Monica and back where I'm all caught up in my favorite podcasts and AM radio is just far too frustrating when you can't call in and read the host, the riot act, for being a horrible neocon or regressive leftist. That's what Audible is for. For a limited time, if you download the app on your desktop or mobile phone from our website, tmvpodcast.com, Amazon is offering new Audible users two free audiobooks. Now, personally, I suggest you make good use of those two free books. Get yourself one of those backbreakers that you've been meaning to read but just haven't had the time or the will to open it up. Go to tmvpodcast.com and right there on the right-hand side, you'll find a link to this exclusive offer. Don't miss out, folks. Head over to tmvpodcast.com, click on the Audible banner, and get your two free audiobooks today. So 
first off, the, the main economic fallacy behind eminent domain or that allows that, that kind of got it written into the, um, that got it written into the constitution under the takings clause was the fair market value fallacy. So there is no fair market value, all right? There, there may be a general market value. There may be a value that an investor or a purchaser may not be willing to pay more than, uh, but in that case, that doesn't mean that the seller has to sell. The seller can still hold out for a higher value. The, the values are subjective, okay? They're subjective. Everybody has their own set of values and they're ranked based on their, uh, their scale of utility. So a, a seller of a home that they own may not feel as though whatever the quote unquote market value is, is enough for them to sell. They, they can hold out. They have every right to hold out They're They're the property owner. And in that case, the, the, the would be buyer of the home that's making their assessment based on maybe comparable prices of other homes, they're going to have to go on and find a new home, right? The seller does not have to sell. Now, we all know that, that, yes, consumers set prices, consumers set prices, but that's based on prices of units that are actually being sold, whether they're widgets and gadgets or whether they're homes or whether they're, you know, different, different types of foods, whatever the case may be. Yes, sellers are price takers. They're not price makers. So sellers have to take the price that consumers are willing to pay for it. Having said that, they also don't have to take any price. They can just hold on to their goods and the consumers can't just then steal it and, and then leave whatever they feel as though the proper value and their subjective, uh, subjective values, you know, sub- set of subjective values would be, they have to have an agreed upon price with the seller before a deal actually gets done. Now, back during the pre, uh, pre-marginal revolution era, which, uh, you know, the constitution was written in the 1790s early 1790s back then it was still you know the economic lands the economic knowledge landscape was still dominated by classical school theory classical school uh basically claimed that this was a major mistake in the classical school uh that that value was based on labor right or based on the time put into it or the value of the labor contributed to it it was a major mistake and Karl Menger the one of the founders of the Austrian School of Economics blew that myth up in his Principles of Economics, and then one of the ways that he discovered that there is no such thing as you know labor, you know cost of labor uh, values, and that values are subjective was by watching the stock market and just seeing that well you know you'd have transactions at this price, you know at price A, and then you'd have another transaction at price B, and that people were willing to buy and sell at much different prices all the time. And these prices of the, on the stock market were constantly fluctuating. And he realized that basically prices were subjective, that different people had different prices that they were willing to pay or that they were willing to accept. And he also came up with a theory called the double inequality of values, which is the necessity for exchange. In order to have an exchange take place, the seller must value the money that they're receiving more than they value the good or the asset that they're holding on to. And the buyer must value the good or the asset that they're trying to acquire less than the money that they're giving up in order for a transaction to happen. So you have a double inequality of values. And now the, the classical school 
had a theory that was based on inequality of values. But what Karl Manger pointed out and what others have pointed out uh, in, from the Austrian school and then going forward post-marginal revolution and other schools of thought is that if there were just a pure equality of values, there really would be no gain in utility from exchange and there'd be no reason to exchange. If the values of, of the money and the good were the exact same to both parties, then you just wouldn't have exchanges happen because there'd be no gain in utility from the exchange. So it wouldn't make sense to actually exchange. Everything would just stay equal. So therefore, you had to have an inequality of values on both ends. Now, the next myth that leads to eminent domain is that the cost is lower than simply buying out the properties voluntarily. And this is where a lot of people come in and, and say, you know, cause most, most Americans are very, I would, I would say that most Americans, if you pulled most Americans, except for developers that have gained from eminent domain, that most Americans would say decisions like Kilo are absolutely wrong, that the situation like what's going on in Charleston, uh, Charlestown, Indiana, are absolutely wrong and egregious and they absolutely should be prevented. Having said that, if you were to ask that those same people what they think of eminent domain for the construction of roads and what they think of eminent domain for the construction of different infrastructure projects, most of them would be all for it. And the reason that most people would be all for it is that they have this belief that uh, that it it's just a lot less expensive and it costs taxpayers a lot less money to do it that way. And that it's really the only feasible way because otherwise you wouldn't be able to get hold. You'd have a couple of holdouts, but this is, it, there's huge flaws in this. So first of all, I want to just use an analogy and I've talked about, I've done an episode on this podcast, um, episode 14. I'll link to it on, on tonight's show page, uh, which you can find at macroviewnews.com slash podcast slash 48. But uh, I also did a, an episode, it's going to be a multiple, multiple part series on our sister podcast, Burning Straw Men, which you can find at burningstrawmen.com and about the roads. This was episode two and we're going to, episode three is going to build upon what we talked about in episode two. Um, so, but I do want to, uh, I do want to address this, this myth that it actually costs less, Right. So, but before I get to that, one of the reasons why people think that it costs less is that you would have a couple of holdouts and it'd be really, really tough and you'd have to pay a lot more to get those holdouts. And maybe those holdouts aren't willing to accept anything. Maybe they just don't want their property to be given up. And so as an analogy to that, yes, that, that, that is quite possibly true. And you may have to go around them or, or replan um, and I talked about strategies for how that can be done in both episode 14 and in episode two of burning straw men. And you should check those out. I'm not going to get into very deep details on that, on the strategy, but I mean, if you just think about the construction of a large mall, like say a mega mall, right? A lot of times mega malls are built on what was previously a number of separate lots. So they've had to go and they had to buy up all the little lots you know, whether they were home, a residential, a bunch of residential units or whatever the case may be, they bought up all these different lots. They had to get them rezoned into one major lot, you know, into one large, you know, retail lot and to build this mega mall. Now, a lot of times now recently, don't get me wrong. Recently, there have been mega malls built using eminent domain. But in the past, when malls were first starting to be built, nobody would have imagined building it with eminent domain. They looked at the 
the uh, highest and best use for the for the value of that land. They determined that it would be a good investment to buy a bunch of these lots up, even if there were homes on them, to pay the price that you'd have to pay. They bought them up. They would negotiate with the homeowners. They would get the uh, the homeowners to sell them their land, and they would build a mall. Now, you building a mall voluntarily is much, much, much more difficult than building a road. Why? Because a road or some form of infrastructure project can you can curve it. You can go around a holdout. You could go over a holdout and probably not, you know, some some places give you certain level of air rights, but technically speaking, you can work around a holdout on a road. Now, you're not going to build a mall where there's somebody's home in the middle of the mall, right? Um so th- there's it's a lot more difficult to actually build a mega mall when you're buying up homes voluntarily than it is to build a road. Now it's true. If you're building a really long road, maybe there's more people that need to be negotiated with, but you don't need to use eminent domain to do this. And beyond that, it costs more to use eminent domain. It costs taxpayers money to begin with. Whereas in the voluntary situation, it's, there's no cost to taxpayers, maybe a little bit here or there um, in the time cost of a, of a clerk, doing a bunch of rezoning and getting, you know, the property developer trying to get all the permits and all of that stuff. And maybe it, it shifts some resources to this more urgent use at, at the city building and other permits get slowed down as a result of it. Maybe there's a little bit of cost there, but in general, there's not any cost to the taxpayer, broadly speaking, when it's done voluntarily. On the other hand, eminent domain almost always leads to lawsuits. So you have tons of costs on, in the courthouse. You have tons of legal costs that the city has to use to defend its decision. And oftentimes these can be cases that are that are dragged out for four, five, six, seven years that go all the way to the Supreme Court, that it takes years and years and years to get to a, a Supreme Court decision and to get on the docket of the Supreme Court. And that can cost millions and millions of dollars, millions, millions, millions of dollars, probably more money then at least in the near term, the net present value of in- increased tax revenues from a newly developed piece of property would even possibly bring in. So, and I, you know, I, I don't know if anybody's actually done the cost of fighting Kilo, the cost of Kilo versus the city of New London and what the city of New London had to pay in legal costs to act going all the way to the Supreme Court and to actually get the decision that the Supreme Court uh, handed down the egregious decision that the Supreme Court handed down. And then since then, the tax revenues that have been brought in and whether or not they've they've even you know, they're even close to a, a net present value uh, calculation, the net present value result that would make any sense at all. I would personally guess probably not. I'd personally guess probably not that probably the city of New London lost way, way, way more money on its fight against Kilo than it's brought in on net present value terms from the new development in the city of New London that that Kilo was was made about. You know, the, the whole case came came up about, you know, the stealing of the, the people's property and the redevelopment of that property. That would just be my guess. Somebody should probably do a study on it. I don't personally have time. Maybe eventually or later on in life, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll take that up. But my my assumption would be that the costs that were the legal costs that the city took on and that were imposed upon the taxpayers to fight the case far outweigh, far outweigh the cost of or the revenue brought in, the additional tax revenue brought in 
by this new development that Kilo was all about. Well, everybody, that's all for tonight. I hope you enjoyed tonight's show. Um, I, I really, if you're not listening to tonight, I'm putting some, some uh, resources on tonight's show page. So if you're not listening to tonight's show from the show page, you should check it out. It's macroviewnews.com slash podcast slash 48. Now, you can also get to the homepage of macroviewnews.com through our new redirect link, which is TMV, as in the macroviewpodcast.com, all one word. And that'll take you to the homepage. It'll be the first post on that homepage will be episode 48. So um, while you're there, do not forget to follow us on Facebook and on Twitter. Don't forget to go and subscribe to our YouTube channel up in the header of our homepage. You'll find links to each. You'll find the little social icons. You click on those. It'll take you right to our pages and you'll be able to subscribe to our YouTube page, like our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter. Don't forget to do that. Do not forget to sign up for our email list. There's going to be some really great things coming to the macro view very, very soon. So you're going to want to sign up to our email list. And uh, that way you can be notified of when those, those big announcements drop. And you'll also be notified when new episodes drop. Now, lastly, but most importantly, most importantly, while you're on the show page, do not forget to share the macro view with your friends, with your family, with your social media networks, and wherever else you feel as though you can help me to spread the logic of liberty. That's all for tonight, folks. Tune back in tomorrow for episode 49. It's going to be a great episode. Take care until then.